Executive Director of Penn American Center. I want to welcome you all on behalf of Penn to tonight's discussion, Cuba on the Verge, a reassessment. Let me first of all thank the Time Warner Book Group and uh, especially its chairman, Larry Kirschbaum, who made this program possible. As many of you know, Penn was founded by a group of prominent writers in 1921 who sought, as Arthur Miller recently put it, to unite the intellectuals of Europe in an organization, a fellowship is probably a better word, around the demand for unfettered communication and publishing so that supernationalism might be stopped in its tracks by criticism from abroad. Penn has grown into an organization encompassing 132 centers in 94 countries whose members subscribe to a charter that declares that members of Penn should at all times use what influence they have in favor of good understanding and mutual respect between nations. They pledge themselves to do their utmost to dispel class, race, and national hatreds and to champion the ideal of one humanity living at peace in one world. It is in this spirit that Penn proudly co-sponsors this evening's program. Under our charter, Penn members also pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong, as well as throughout the world, wherever this is possible. Penn's advocacy on behalf of threatened writers is well known. Penn centers around the world are currently working to end the persecution of more than 1,000 writers and journalists who are in prison or facing persecution for the peaceful expression of their ideas. 57 of these are Cuban, many of them well-known independent journalists and poets who were pr prosecuted as part of a major crackdown on dissident activity earlier this year. A list of those, pen, of those people Penn believes have been jailed or are facing persecution in Cuba in violation of their universally guaranteed right to freedom of expression is available at the back of the auditorium. International Penn and Penn Centers in North America, Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia are working daily for the restoration of this most fundamental right. We will do so until these men and women and all our colleagues in Cuba and around the world are free to participate in conversations and in programs such as this one. Now it's my pleasure to introduce a great friend of Penn, an editor, arts producer, curator, and documentary filmmaker whose most recent project was the beautiful book Cuba on the Verge, An Island in Transition, published by Bullfinch Press and Time Warner Book Group. She was also the curator of the critically acclaimed exhibition of the same name at the International Center of Photography earlier this year. Welcome, please, Terry McCoy. Thank you, Mike, for those kind words about me, but more importantly, for reminding us of Penn's extremely important work around the world and in Cuba in particular. And of course, my thanks to Penn American Center for its support and sponsorship of this evening's panel discussion, Cuba on the Verge, a reassessment. I'm assuming that you all have a brochure which includes brief bios for each of this evening's participants. You might want to take a moment, if you haven't already, to familiarize yourselves with just some of their achievements, and please allow me to take a moment to thank them. Some of them have traveled a long way to be here tonight and to, to participate in this discussion, and if I haven't said it already, it is very much appreciated. I'm also very grateful to Norm Perlstein for his gracious acceptance of our invitation to moderate this evening's panel. Thank you, Norm. 
And finally, to Larry Kirschbaum, chairman of the board of Time Warner Book Group, for making so much, including this evening, happen. For the brochure, we will be using the focus of the book, Cuba on the Verge, an Island in Transition, which was released by Bullfinch Press in May of this year as a point of departure for the discussion this evening. As editor of the book, I have to say that when it went to press at the very beginning of the year, Cuba seemed on the verge of an historic transition to closer emotional and intellectual ties with the United States with the possible hope of a political thaw. However, as some of you may know, in March and April of this year, an unexpected and extreme crackdown on dissidents by the Castro government and counter-allegations of U.S. provocations have led to a marked deterioration in the relationship. So the discussion tonight is really centered around the questions, what happened, why did it happen, and where are we today? We are particularly fortunate to have with us this evening a panel which is made up of contributors to the book as they are in a unique position to assess these events and the controversies they generated, hopefully offering context and insight based on their experiences on and off the island during the past year. In fact, Archie Obey has just returned from Havana yesterday. And so we hope to reassess the notion of an evolving Cuba, exploring possible avenues for advancing relations between our two nations, if possible. I would like to add that we, will, that we will be taking questions from the audience. However, we will wait until the panel discussion is completed before taking them. At that time, we would ask that you raise your hand and wait to be called on by Mr. Perlstein before asking your question. Please direct it to a particular panelist. Since we don't have the time and this isn't the place for it, there will be no statements or comments permitted. We will try to get to as many questions as possible, and also due to a shortage of time, we will only be taking one question per audience member, so no follow-up questions. One question, keep it brief and specific, and be courteous and allow someone else the same opportunity. Finally, there is one man who has been particularly supportive throughout this project. He's William Kennedy. I won't take up more of this evening's time by taking you through his, this Pulitzer Prize-winning writer's bio. Suffice it to say, his accomplishments are quite extraordinary. He also contributed the intro introduction to my book. Needless to say, I have a fairly high opinion of him. I will just say how wonderful it is for me to be able to introduce Mr. Kennedy, who will lead off our evening's discussion. Welcome, Bill. Good evening. When the book Cuba on the Verge went to press late last year, Cuba was changing and everybody seemed to know it. Nobody could be sure how the change would happen, not even Fidel Castro or George Bush, although Mr. Bush thought he had an answer to provoke Fidel into becoming a Democrat with a small d. Americans were heading for Havana, the forbidden city, in ever greater numbers legally through the door the Clinton administration opened in 1999, and illegally via Cancun, the Bahamas, Montreal, etc. And at that point, the U.S. government didn't seem to care whether you were illegal or not. Twice I came into Miami from Cuba, and nobody even searched me for cigars. The easing of travel rules under Bill Clinton had also created a people-to-people -people form of licensed tourism that in 2002 sent an estimated 16,000 travelers to Cuba on expensive lightweight tours, academic, historical, musical, architectural, tobacco factory, bike riding junkets. Cuban exiles sent or carried an estimated billion dollars into Cuba in 2001, and tourists from around the world brought in another billion. Poverty was increasing for the 
unceasing for the mass, vast majority of Cubans, while untold billions of dollars hovered over the island, waiting to be invested when Fidel gave the word. Russell Banks and I had a long conversation with Fidel in February of this year when we were in Havana for the Cuban Book Fair. We had each had a book published down there and found him in no hurry to usher in any more capitalism. The dollar had been legal since 1994 and the consequent tourism boom is creating a new middle class. But Fidel makes it difficult to buy luxuries, DVD players for instance, on buying a car unless you're a foreigner, a diplomat, or an artist with what Fidel called hard-earned money is almost impossible. Cars, he said, create traffic jams, accidents, and pollution. And motorcycles, they induce insanity. What a thing, he said, for a third world nation to become consumers like France and Italy. Nevertheless, the pressure to open a new era for Cuba's economy by bringing down the embargo that John F. Kennedy created in 1962 to destroy Cuba's economy was mounting as this year 2003 began. And with a coalition of very odd bedfellows, growing factions in both houses of Congress, the US travel industry, farm capitalists in 33 states who have been doing cash business in the hundreds of millions with Cuba all agree, and are still doing them, all agreed with some very odd converts in Miami, Bay of Pigs veterans, old counter-revolutionaries, and a dozen of the richest Cuban Americans in Florida, that the embargo had to go. 40 years of existence and eight presidents after JFK, it stood as a failure in perpetuity. The socialist structure had prevailed and Fidel had not budged, nor would he. Ex-President Jimmy Carter's visit to Cuba in May 2002 raised hope for some bridging of differences, at least a beginning perhaps, but President Bush undercut any peacemaking by Carter with a vitriolic attack on Castro before cheering Cuban exiles in Miami, saying he'd up only embargo until Cuba made democratic reforms. An administration spokesman also accused Cuba of making biological weapons. The president's attack came a week after the surfacing of the Varela Project, a petition from Cuban dissidents with 11,000 signatures asking the Cuban National Assembly to sponsor a referendum on democratic reform. Fidel answered this with a petition of his own, 8.1 signatures from 99% of the voting age Cubans declaring socialism untouchable. His National Assembly amended the constitutional accordingly, and that was that for democracy. The relatively open era of Cuban-American exchange that had begun under Clinton came to an end under Bush. People-to-people -people licenses revoked, no more music and bike tours, visa denied to Cubans attending U.S. academic conferences, film festivals, book fairs, even oncologists <coughs> were turned away from cancer meetings. As to Cuba, its dissident journalists, librarians, and democratic activists involved with the Varela Project their work long tolerated by Fidel, were arrested and charged with subversion in collaboration with U.S. diplomats, notably with the head of the U.S. interest section in Cuba, James Quezon. And as their trials unfolded, it became clear that the dissidents' ranks had been infiltrated for years by a dozen or more Cuban intelligence agencies, agents. The roundup of 75 dissidents was part of a sudden crisis for Cuba. 
a spate, <coughs> a spate of plane and boat hijackings after, by Fidel's count, 19 years without any. On March 19 of this year, the Iraq war began with the American bombing of Baghdad. Two hours before the war began, a Cuban DC-3 was hijacked to Key West by six men. Twelve days later, a lone man tried to hijack a Cubana airliner and failed. Cubana airliner and failed. Thirteen days later, a man with, white, with his wife and child hijacked another Cuban plane to Key West. The next day, a Cuban ferry boat with 50 people aboard was hijacked, and three Cuban men were deemed responsible. Responsible. Nine days after they were captured at sea and given a summary trial, the three were executed by a Cuban firing squad. World reaction was swift and negative. The Pope, the European Union, human rights groups, showbiz friends of Cuba such as Pedro Almodovar, Catherine Deneuve, political intellectuals and literary figures from the left such as Carlos Fuentes, Eduardo Galeano, and Nobel Prize winner Jose Saramago, spoke severely against capital punishment, summary justice, and harsh sentences given to the nonviolent dissidents up to 28 years in prison. Lech Walesa of Poland and Václav Havel of the Czech Republic petitioned world leaders to finance Cuba's dissident movement. <coughs> the European Union's, and Spain's especially, and Saramago's condemnations seemed to rankle Fidel the most and his internet and print media instantly moved into damage control with Cuban intellectuals and artists justifying the executions and harsh sentences as a necessary response to US provocation and urging their foreign colleagues to cool their criticism. On May Day in Havana, Fidel told a crowd of 100,000 that in, in Miami and Washington, they are now discussing where, how, and when Cuba will be attacked. Among Cuban exiles in Miami, there ran a chorus of Iraq today, Cuba tomorrow. And hope lived on for American military intervention as the proper way to end the 44-year-old revolution. Film director Oliver Stone made a documentary on Castro called Comandante that was to be shown on HBO last May 5th. But after the executions, the film was shelved. Stone blamed this on lobbying by what he called the, quote, Cuban mafia, unquote, in Miami. He returned to Cuba for a 10-day, 30-hour interview with Castro in August and asked some tough questions to the Comandante. And he now has a new film called Looking for Castro that will premiere, he says, in 2004. A long question and answer excerpt from the transcript, which I haven't seen published anywhere in this country, appeared in Spain's El Mundo on September 28. I'll read a bit with shortened versions of Stone's questions. Question on the summary executions. Quote, we were virtually in a state of war, said Fidel, on the link between the start of the Iraq war and the first two hijackings. I'm very distrustful. The first hijacking was March 19th, and the second, the 31st of the same month. Between the two dates, judges in Miami absolved the Cuban pirates of any terrorist charges and freed them. Why were the executions done so fast? <clears throat> Quote, I am not a person without pity, nor inaccessible to petitions for mercy, but our first duty is to defend our people. 
There is absolutely no doubt about that, even though I know the condemned are not as guilty as those who motivated them to, motivated them to commit the hijackings, unquote. Who motivated them? <clears throat> it's very clear, the U.S. government. Bush is surrounded by extremists. It pained me to send those people to death, but it was necessary. One month and 10 days after those sinister events, there has not been even one plane or boat hijacking. Why such long jail terms for the dissidents? Because those people wanted to destroy the Cuban Revolution and received tons of money from the United States. In reacting so strongly, don't you run the risk of falling into Bush's trap? Quote, if you cross paths with a barracuda while swimming, as has happened to me, and full of fear you try to swim back to the beach, you're finished. On the contrary, if you look him directly in the eyes, the barracuda goes away. As a matter of principle, no Cuban will turn his back on the aggressor." Unquote. End of excerpt. George Bush is keeping the aggression level high toward Cuba. His administration expelled 14 Cuban diplomats, again accused Cuba of making biological weapons, urged his homeland security people to intensify scrutiny of Americans, of Americans who travel illegally to Cuba from a third country, and cheered up Cuban exiles considerably with his announcement that they can send, now send quarterly payments of $3,000 to their families in Cuba, up from 300. The move is also a source of host, hope for the president that some of this new money will find its way to Cuban dissidents. A surprise setback for the president was the Senate passage two weeks ago of a bill ending the ban on travel to Cuba. The vote of 59-38, a hefty margin, followed a comparable bill passed in the House by 227-188. The Senate had rejected easing the ban in 1999, but this year 13 senators switched sides and voted to end it. President Bush has threatened to veto it, which is not so easy since it's attached to the bill for the Treasury and Transportation Department's budgets. It, if he doesn't find a way to veto it, which is unimaginable, he could lose Florida's formidable ex Cuban exile vote, which means he'd lose the state. He got 80% of the exile vote in 2000, but won the state by fewer than 600 votes. If the bill passes both houses over Bush's veto, most unlikely, it would mortally wound the Cuban embargo and send potentially a million American tourists to Cuba the first year and three million in five years. Since Cuba has only 40,000 hotel rooms on the entire island, this may lead to overcrowding. Cuba will accept any avalanche at its own speed, of course, if it accepts it at all. There is, as we know, a long-standing argument that Fidel tacitly supports the embargo because it can be blamed for the shortcomings of the revolution. <clears throat> Though Fidel is narrowing his inner circle of associates, everything still begins and ends with him. He is 77 no longer a robust figure, but he continues. Oliver Stone asked him whether a younger man might now lead Cuba better than he, and he replied, you want me to answer frankly? No. <laughs> Are you a dinosaur? Stone inquired. On the contrary, Fidel said, I feel like a bird that has just left the nest. I fly toward eternity. At times, I think I'd like to be still here in the year 3000. On that futuristic note, let me turn you over to our moderator, Norman Perlstein, and our panelists who have a vast collection of knowledge of Cuba. And I thank you.
Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, and you've certainly given us uh, a great deal to, to uh, try to build on from your, your comments. Uh, Pablo, let's begin with uh, asking you to comment a bit about the crackdown itself in terms of uh, the timing uh, from Castro. Uh, can you explain that to us? Well, uh, uh, no one knows for sure whether whether the crackdown was connected to the uh, Iraq war or not, but it's certainly an interesting coincidence. Um, it, it, uh, people will argue, um, and I think with reason, that uh, while, while Bush was occupied in Iraq, Castro saw the opportunity uh, to arrest uh, these dissidents, um, 75 of them, and in uh, summary trials, uh, uh, condemn them to uh, between six and 28 years uh, in prison. Uh, I should add that, to my knowledge, mm, these people were not cr common criminals. Uh, they had not broken um, any common criminal laws. They had not killed anyone. They had not uh, robbed anyone. There were uh, intellectuals, writers, independent librarians, and uh, uh, engineers, and so on and so forth, uh, mostly highly educated people who saw an opportunity uh, through a loophole in, in, a Cuba, in the Cuban Constitution to petition the Cuban Parliament uh, to, to, uh, open, uh, uh, to have open and free elections and uh, freedom of speech. So uh, uh, again, it's arguable that, that uh, Castro took the opportunity the opening of the Iraq War to arrest and and uh, judge these people. Do you s have you read or heard anything that would suggest to you that uh, the um, allegation of uh, U.S. Uh, involvement in trying to undermine the government through the dissidents might have justified his moving at this time? Well, again, I point to their backgrounds uh, as jour independent journalists, librarians, uh, poets, and so on and so forth. Um, and ask the question, what exactly had they done other than receive the attention of Mr. Kaysen in the American interest section to merit such draconian sentences? Thank you. Um, John Lee Anderson, uh, you have lived in Cuba for three years, uh, were there in the spring of 2002, and. Uh, this year, of course, have been spending a fair amount of time in Iraq. And uh, I wonder from that perspective if you could talk a bit about uh, the way uh, the rest of the world looks upon Cuba, looks upon uh, the U.S. and ways in which uh, U.S. and involvement in Iraq might, be, uh, might have influenced uh, Castro's thinking and also that of uh, many other countries. Mm. Yes. Um, I was remembering a story um, uh, today, an encounter with a, a man who was um, quite close to Saddam, um, whom I was talking with throughout the war and then after it. Um, and we were having a discussion, uh, I guess a week or so after the fall of Baghdad, as the Americans were extending their presence throughout the, the city and the rest of the country, and we began talking about Cuba. And both of us remarked that we had heard about the crackdown uh, during the bombing. It was something we hadn't heard about immediately. But 
I remember when I heard feeling an immediate sort of uh, note of logic to it. it. It didn't jar. I thought, oh, yeah, that sort of makes sense. And then the bombing continued and the war continued. And, and I got together with this fellow afterwards. He happened to have been in Cuba himself at one point. At any rate, it was very interesting because he has, like a lot of people, both in Cuba and Iraq, uh, both very isolated, politically isolated societies um, over the years with a certain amount of, of affinities in terms of the, the kind of social psychology that's come with living under very long-term authoritarian governments. One obviously not quite as extreme as the other, but nonetheless, a common syndrome of power and, and, and suppression of civic freedoms. And he uh, uh, reflected that this undoubtedly, <coughs> the invasion and occupation of Iraq, um, uh, meant that uh, the United States was now, uh, felt itself free to uh, do what it would uh, 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 to fulfill its manifest destiny as an empire in a more naked way than it ever had before. And he, he believed that Cuba would eventually be annexed by the United States. That was his solemn conclusion about the future of Cuba. Um, I thought back to, of course, I don't, I don't regard that as as remotely plausible, but nonetheless, it's it's a perception of a lot of people in the world that 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 the United States is a, is a militarily interventionist state, and in Cuba itself, even people, friends that I that I have and I've known for years who are are no lovers of Fidel, have nonetheless lived in this kind of hothouse atmosphere, isolated from a great deal of discourse, public discourse about the kinds of things we're, we're accustomed to here and now. And, and they have received many of their perceptions through a filter, if, if not only uh, Fidel's rhetoric, from the perspective of an island which has uh, very often a bunker-like, a siege-like feeling. Uh, and on my last trip to Cuba, which was after the war in Afghanistan and before the war in Iraq, um, I went back to see a friend and uh, she's a woman in her late 30s, highly educated, has traveled, uh, is, is equally conversant with American society as Cuban. And nonetheless, when she saw me and knowing that I had been through the Iraq, uh, to, through the Afghan war, um, hugged me and, and, and talked with great pain and, and, uh, and despair about how horrible it must have been. And, and I wasn't sure quite what she meant and then she began to talk about the Dresden-like carpet bombing of the country and the horrific devastation that the American bombing campaign had wrought upon Afghanistan. And I realized that her perception of it was entirely, entirely different to the actual reality that that, of that war on the ground. And she, her conclusion was that this, you know, I had begun to think differently of the Americans, but but now it's clear, you know, anything is possible. And even just as my parents always told me from what I remember as a child from the early 60s, they, they, they can come to Cuba any day. Fidel capitalized, I believe, on that sort of, that, that, that feeling of, 
of, of paranoia, uh, the bunker-like psychology of his island, and and moved at a time when when it seemed uh, a reasonable thing to do, um, something that was acceptable under the circumstances with a resurgent militaristic the United States in, 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 in the official rhetoric and in the minds of many people sort of rampaging across the planet. Was mm. there also a sense, any sense that um, Fidel might have been uh, looking to the UN? Thank oh, you I'm very sorry. much. Sorry. Um, I was just asking as a follow-up whether um, Cuba might have also had an eye on the United Nations and attitudes toward the U.S. within it in terms of its uh, choice of timing. Um, there have been about a dozen resolutions within the U.N. to try to get the embargo lifted. I think on the last one there were 179 countries in support of lifting the embargo and it was only the United States, Israel, and the Marshall Islands that uh, um, were in support of continuing it, and I just wondered whether he might have thought that this was a time when antipathy toward the U.S. within the U.N. might have been so great that he might have gotten some support there that he might otherwise have lost. It's entirely possible. I would never be one to double-think Fidel, nor do I think any of us would try, but I think there has, there's a pattern uh, uh, with Fidel of this, of, of allowing uh, dissidents, opposition, different, different political culture to to sort of to begin to mushroom and then tighten up. Um, even when he legalized the dollar um, and allowed limited private enterprise, he, he appeared to allow it to, to, to you know, let, a, let a thousand flowers bloom. And then <coughs> once, once they had bloomed, he plucked the ones he didn't want and allowed uh, others to, to remain. There's always been this waxing and waning, this tightening and exp uh, this, this flexibility by Fidel, which is inevitably clamped down upon um, as a reminder that he's always in control. Um, Russell, thanks. Uh, mm. as, uh, as Bill suggested, you were in Cuba in February for the book fair, and you did meet with Castro at that time. Did you get any indication either from him or from uh, any of his close supporters that this kind of crackdown was imminent? No, no, I certainly didn't. Um, but I would like to expand a little on that. Um, you know, it seems that we're trying to talk about a couple of things here, and, um, and, I, and I think this meeting has, has been arranged in some ways for us to try to understand Cuban policy now as it's unfolded, certainly since March, particularly since March. But th by the same token, also to some degree, um, how to understand U.S. policy as it's unfolded I'm sorry. Um, we're also trying to understand how um, we're trying to understand U.S. policy as it has unfolded over the over the months since um, leading up to to the Iraqi war. When when Bill and I were in in, uh, in Cuba in late February, um, we had this extraordinary opportunity. Um, first, a, a public meeting of six hours with a, with a a group of about 14 other writers from uh, from the Americas. Uh, we were the only from the United States, only writers from the United States, and and Fidel held court as he does. Um, and um, and then later the next day uh, we we had a six-hour private meeting with him. He may be 76, um, 77 years old, but he seems to have the energy of a 25-year-old on speed. Um, 
he didn't seem frail in the slightest to us. Um, but one thing that struck us, struck me certainly, and I know Bill too, uh, was at this time his, uh, his fixation on American foreign policy, particularly with regard to Iraq. And it wasn't just a, um, a curiosity or, or a, um, um, an attempt to understand America. It was, it was self-serving. Um, it, was, it was, what does this mean for Cuba? Um, and, and it wasn't just a, um, it wasn't an attempt simply to understand it in a practical matter. What, what, are, their, what are their practical intentions? It was an attempt to understand the mentality and mythology that, as he saw it, these men were operating under. Not their politics, even. Um, conservative versus liberal, Democrat versus Republican. But um, what kind of fantasy were these men, um, as he saw them, operating under? Which seemed to me to be a reasonable question in late February and early March. Um, and then, there was something even, even more curious to me, um, and I don't know if Bill will confirm this or not, but I was struck by what struck, what, what seemed to me to be a, almost an ignorance of American uh, context, political context. Um, and I don't think I was being deceived, um, but one of the things for Fidel that was um, puzzling uh, was how can, um, 100,000 or 150,000 Cuban exiles in Dade County have such enormous political sway in Washington. So I uh, spent some time explaining the electoral system, um, which I don't think was news to him altogether, but I don't know that he'd ever really connected all these things together at that moment. Anyhow, he hadn't. But it was clear that, that he was operating under a siege mentality that had been exacerbated terribly by the buildup to the war in Iraq. The shockwaves um, of that buildup and then the war itself, I think we must understand, um, had uh, enormous implications for third world countries and especially those um, uh, who uh, have been designated enemies of the United States. And, and the Cubans and Fidel particularly understood it this way. Um, Finally, it comes down to perception, I, I, I began to realize. Um, and this occurred very early in our visit. This was only my second visit to Cuba. I am in no way an expert on Cuba, although I've, I've, I've sat on the side since I was 18 years old watching the Cuban Revolution unfold and, and withdraw and, and uh, fossilize, as it seems to have, to some enormous degree. Um, but it came down to perception. And, and, and I, can, I can narrow it to the difference between two words. When we say embargo, they say blockade. And this makes an enormous difference of perception. Uh, we in the United States sit here and, and, and regard our policy as, as, uh, as having implemented and, and exercised an embargo. They in Cuba sit there and, and regard it as a blockade, which means they feel they're under siege, that they're in a state of war. And they behave accordingly. And as we build up here in the United States to, um, you know, as, as this Goliath wakes from his sleep, stands up and starts wielding his weapons, um, they regard it, that, that action, um, with enormous fear. This I felt everywhere. I felt it at, uh, on the street level, I felt it on the ministerial level, and I felt it certainly with Fidel. 
as we as we talked. Um, Acha, you are a regular commuter to Cuba. Uh, Acha, you are a regular commuter to uh, Cuba and back to the U.S. to Chicago. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your your perceptions of how the um, how the crackdown uh, has been greeted by ordinary Cubans in the street. Um, and perhaps you might comment also a bit about uh, the perceptions of, of the U.S. among Cubans today. Well, I think the first uh, thing to clear up is that for Cubans, the crackdown did not happen in April or in March. Uh, while Bill and Russell were at the book fair with Fidel, the crackdown was already well underway about a month. It came under the guise of a drug crackdown, and what was happening was that rapid action brigades of the Havana police primarily, but also out in the provinces, were raiding homes uh, in a bizarre uh, campaign designed around drugs, but that which was really netting unauthorized computers, faxes, telephone lines, internet access, cable connections, uh, televisions, etc. What is an authorized, uh, you know, computer, et cetera, one for which you don't have a receipt? Um, and because almost all of that equipment in Cuba is essentially acquired in the black market, nearly, basically nobody has a receipt. Um, I was in Cuba in both January and February, and again in March and April, and in our neighborhood in old Havana, which is pretty much the center of town, you could get up nearly every day around 4.30 and walk the street and find at least one block cordon off while somebody was being raided. If you were raided, you not only lost your equipment, you lost your home. So it was a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic thing that was going on, but because it was affecting ordinary Cubans that had no linkage to the United States, for the most part it wasn't getting any kind of press coverage in the United States. It did get press coverage in Mexico and in Spain um, I think the other thing to talk about a little bit is the notion of uh, the dissidents. There seems to be this idea that these dissidents had some sort of commonality um, and that that commonality was either that they were taking money from the U.S. in some way or another or that they attended meetings with uh, James Kaysen, the director of the U.S. Special Interest Section, which is unquestionably leading a guerrilla campaign against uh, the Cuban government, and to think otherwise is just plain naive. But in fact, the dissidents um, are actually not, uh, they're very varied, and uh, their crimes, if you want to call it that, even under uh, these conditions are, are very different. For example, the most well-known of the Cuban dissidents, Raul Rivero, uh, never attended any meetings at James Kaysen's. Uh, home or at the special interest section that had to do with any of the activities that led to the crackdown. Um, a lot of these people were taking uh, money from Kaysen in one way or another, but a lot of these people who have been accused of taking money from the U.S. were actually taking money from a magazine in Spain called Encuentro, which you can find on the net. Uh, Encuentro is in Spain, but it's essentially supported by uh, U.S. government money. About 80,000 bucks, I think, alone came from the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, that's, that's separate from the government money. Um, the irony here is that there are people in the Cuban government who have published articles in Encuentro and have also taken money, but they don't get cracked on because they are part of the system. People like Jorge Luis Arcos, who was the 
editor of Union, one of the periodicals put out by the uh, Union of Writers and Artists of Cuba. You don't get more official than that. Um, in Cuba, out on the streets, the crackdown and the dissonance meant absolutely squat. And the reason for that is because most of them are completely unknown to the Cuban population. The Cuban government controls all of the media that goes out onto the island unless you have an illegal cable connection um, or you somehow have managed internet access or you know a lot of foreigners. For the most part, the dissidents are people that you never have heard of so that when they start rattling off who these 75 people are, you really have no idea and you can't possibly care about them. They didn't arrest the two people who are somewhat known to the population, Elisardo Sanchez Santa Cruz and Oswaldo Paya of the Varela project. They left those two people alone. Um, they left Vladimir Roca alone, who had just recently come out of jail and is also fairly well known in Cuba, more because of his father's fame as a revolutionary commander than uh, because of any of his own dissident activities. Um, but he was one of four people who wrote a treatise called The Homeland is for Everyone about five, six years ago. Um, what mattered to people on the streets, what really mattered to people on the streets were the executions. And the reason for that is because there had not been capital punishment in Cuba for about 10 years. And the three people who were executed were very young. They were all under 25. They were all black. They were all from poor sections of town. What didn't get reported in the United States was that there was a riot in Centro Havana immediately after the executions. What was not reported in the United States was one of the mothers of these young boys actually committed suicide by throwing herself off the balcony, that the revolutionary police actually had to rope off a good part of Central Havana because of the huge and passionate reaction to the executions. The executions mattered because it, it said to the Cuban populace that the government was willing to go to any extreme to take care of whatever problem they perceived. And that really, really affects everyone. That someone as anonymous, as common, as essentially um, rehabilitatable, if you want to call it that, as these three young men um, were perceived. Because uh, even hardcore revolutionary people were saying, well, maybe life sentences. These are very young men. Um, if, if these three people could be killed in nine days, almost anything could happen to almost anyone. Um, and that was the big, 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 big shock. Um, let me throw a question out that, uh, that I'd encourage any of you to, to try to respond to. Um, uh, in talking about Penn's mission, for example, we were talking about uh, how Penn uh, um, is greatly concerned about uh, harsh treatment for for writers, and at the same time advocates uh, um, uh, multi-cultural uh, exchanges and closer uh, uh, relations among nations. Um, what should the international literary community be doing in the face of of the crackdown? Um, is this something that uh, ought to be condemned uh, roundly by the community? Is it, uh, is it a, should, should there be an effort to try to put in context, if you will, either the paranoia that Cuba might feel or the genuine threat that might be there from, from the U.S.? Um, should, uh, uh, I know that uh, the Cuban government has sought signatures from within the U.S. intellectual community in support of at least some understanding of Cuba's situation, and people like Danny Glover have, have signed 
um, such statements, but uh, what what's the role? Uh, Russell, could you take a crack at that? Well, I, I didn't sign the statement that Danny Glover signed um, for several reasons, yet I did sign a letter of protest uh, to the, the persecution of writers, um, uh, but specifically of writers uh, in my role as, as, um, as the president of the International Parliament of Writers, uh, but also just in my role as a writer. Um, I am, when a writer is, is silenced, um, then uh, I have no other response to that for whatever the reasons, but to step forward and condemn it. Um, and I think this is, this is not a peculiar attitude, this is not a peculiar position. Um, but at the same time, I felt that the complexities of the situation and the, um, uh, the mix of people who were, who were uh, sentenced and jailed um, and the, in, the, in the larger context of the political situation was such that, uh, that I couldn't step forward and, and, uh, and sign the statement that Danny Glover and others, uh, other Americans signed. Um, this is a different question in a way. I mean, the, the literary community, I think, has every obligation, every responsibility, to, to, to every reason to, to condemn silencing of writers wherever it occurs, whether it's in Burma or in the United States. Um, and, uh, and I personally have, have, have I hope, um, managed to do that. But uh, we don't have an obligation to uh, condemn every single act of every single government in the, uni in the, in the world that, uh, that appears to be um, unjust. Um, we have an end of Cuba ourselves that we control in Guantanamo where we are violating human rights daily. Um, this, is a, this is something that has to be addressed as well. Um, because we feel we're under siege. We feel that, 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 um, that we're at war. Uh, and and so, uh, so therefore I have to take that context and apply it as well to the context, uh, uh, to the perception that, 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 uh, that Cubans have of their, of their daily lives. Uh, Pablo, uh, could you pick I, up on that? Uh, I, I, yes, and to respond to the question, as a, a Cuban and as a writer and as a member of Penn, I think that it is, okay, I think it is imperative to uh, respond in any way possible against uh, what is, uh, to me, uh, undoubtedly, under any, circumstance, any circumstances, uh, uh, an outrage. And it has been an outrage and has not stopped being an outrage since uh, these arrests happened in March and April. But let me also add that this is just the latest in a series of episodes dating back 43 years of human rights violations, attacks against freedom of speech, attacks against writers, attacks against um, uh, librarians, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there is a pattern here. And uh, it, it, it behooves every writer and it behooves every uh, individual with a conscience of the left, of the right, of the center to really uh, uh, do whatever is possible uh, in response and against um, uh, these arrests and subsequent arrests that are happening not with well-known people, not with writers, but with everyday human beings uh, who are just trying to survive what are 
hard circumstances in, in all of Cuba. Um. John, uh, anything you'd like to add on that? Anything you'd like to add? Yes, I mean, I, I'd like to add my, my fulsome agreement to the sentiments of both Pablo and Russell. Um, uh, Cuba is, is begs out for more journalistic coverage. It's not something that's been easy to do um, over the years. And uh, much like the, uh, depending on what mood um, Fidel is in, in a particular phase. Uh, I'm sorry. I was saying that um, Cuba um, is something that begs out for more sustained journalistic coverage. Um, it's something that's been very difficult to do. Um, uh, those of us who've been there as journalists um, all have to leap through a series of, of, of hoops in order to maintain access on the island um, or to obtain it. There are periods in which they simply don't give visas. Other periods in which journalists um, decide they're going to go there as tourists and burn themselves. That is, they'll be punished for several years afterwards by not being allowed. There is, um, in addition, I'm, well, I guess what I'm saying is I'm expanding on the, the internal uh, controls and suppression of intellectuals and writers in Cuba. It does extend to those of us who travel from without and who have relationships with Cuba where whereby we try to communicate what's going on in the island. When I lived in Cuba for those three years, um, I was there on sufferance um, with a visa, which allowed me to do a very specific thing, which was to uh, do research for a book. I was very conscious that I was on a uh, tightrope the entire time and was extremely careful about who I saw, who I didn't see, um, uh, receiving visits from journalist friends, um, um, and I never reported a story uh, during the time I was there um, in order to maintain my access. Um, one finds different ways, much like people on the island, to get the news out or get the truth out or to, f to accommodate oneself ethically and morally with with uh, living in a circumstance very often that's, that's unjust. I, f I found ways to do that, but I myself did not write stories during those three years. Um, and um, it's something that, that needs to be known um, by, by people, that, that there is this negotiation that goes on. And um, it's, it's useful to know that for, I think, the reading public in order that they um, understand um, where certain stories are coming from. There are also people who've managed to obtain uh, residency in Cuba as journalists, again, on a kind of very special sufferance, and they're under a very, very unique kind of pressure, um, both from the government and from their news organizations to maintain that franchise in Cuba. And so <laughs> when you start seeing a lot of stories about 50s Chevys or cigar rollers. Um, it's usually a kind of quid pro quo for a, a hard story that they wrote and were ticked off and threatened about. It's, um, it's always been very difficult and continues to be. And um, 
I should just add one last thing, and that is that um, on my last trip to Cuba, I did ask beforehand to be able to write, but I was told uh, no, that I could go there as a tourist with my family. They were still angry about a story I had published in 2000, that I could come, but that if I wrote, I would not be allowed back to the island. So I, I didn't write, but I did contribute to the book, but I did not write in the press, mm. um, and uh, with the hope that I could continue to be a, a voice um, to come and go from the island and to choose my moment, as it were. Um, that's, uh, yeah. Um, perhaps because the revolution um, began as a very noble effort, perhaps because uh, it's a socialist revolution where culture has a very critical role. Um, what global intellectuals have to say matters very much <coughs> to the Cuban government. So these kinds of things um, are actually perhaps much more important in the case of Cuba than it might be in the case of of other countries. But I think even more important than the petitions that are signed um, outside of Cuba, than the declarations that are made outside of Cuba, are the things that are said in Cuba by intellectuals in Cuba. And at this point, I'm not necessarily talking about the dissidents. There seems to be this bizarre notion that you're either a dissident or you're for the government. But there's actually a vast number of people who are in between. And one of the more curious things that happened uh, last May, immediately after the events of April, was that before all these petitions from the European Union and Pedro Almodovar and all these other things, uh, Fidel himself uh, decided that uh, there needed to be a petition from uh, Cuban intellectuals uh, asking foreign intellectuals to trust them, to chill out, to take it to take his word for the fact that these uh, actions that were taken in April were absolutely necessary um, and by implication that the executions were also uh, necessary and so a gigantic campaign was put into place to get the signatures of um, as many intellectuals as possible and uh, finally one one week in uh, in I think mid-may uh, Gramna came out with an eight-page supplement that included 10,000 signatures. And among those were a lot of the usual suspects, Alicia Alonso, uh, you know, Ambrosio Fornet. Some of these people are my friends, so it's not a criticism per se. But what was much more, I think, compelling was to look for the signatures that weren't there. And don't kid yourself, there were a number of really vital and critical signatures that weren't there. Pablo Milanes did not sign the petition. The entire staff of La Gaceta de Cuba, which is the most important literary magazine in the entire island, refused to sign. Why was that? Because they didn't go for the capital punishment part of it. Um, artists like Carlos Caracoa and Tania Bruguera refused to sign. And don't think that this was easy. These people were getting calls at home. Um, Tania is my partner, and I was there during the campaign to get her to write. And I actually ended up answering the phone a number of times from um, the authorities, the phone calls from the authorities calling her in to come sign. Um, this was roughly around Passover, and we actually had the Minister of Culture over for Seder, um, <laughs> and we're living in a complete state of, of panic about what would happen if uh, the dinner went sour because uh, he chose to ask about the petition. 
uh, mercifully, he was very courteous about the whole thing and avoided the subject. Um, but our entire table of friends were people who had refused to sign. We had 25 people, uh, and all of the Cubans there had refused to sign, and all of them are revolutionaries by every definition. So don't think that it's so, so monolithic. I mean, there are people there who are not interested in um, you know, Miami, who are not interested in U.S. intervention. They're interested in Cubans making decisions for Cubans, Cubans determining mm. fate, Cubans uh, deciding when reform happens, Cubans wanting reform. Uh, that's, may I say, that's a very powerful very point. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's an incredibly important and powerful point we make here, and, and I suppose to some degrees are also made in, in, in Cuba, between the, the good guys and the bad guys, really don't hold. And they make it very difficult for us to, to come in and take uh, strong stands here and strong stands there without, without it, uh, admitting the complexity of, of the Cuban people themselves and their relation to the revolution. Yeah, and Oswaldo uh, 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 Payá himself is somebody who has said on a number of occasions that these changes are changes that, that, that he wants to happen, this opening of, uh, uh, of the society and free elections and so on, within Cuba and for Cubans. So it's a very, very important point that uh, um, Achi brought up. Let me ask one last question to you, Achi, before we go to questions from the audience. Um, when I first heard about uh, Terry's uh, collection of the book, Cuba on the Verge, uh, An Island in Transition, um, being quite literal, I assumed that this was a book that would be speculating on what would happen to Cuba after Castro's death, and that that was, the ver that was what we were on the verge of, and this was the transition, um, uh, which of course is quite different from what Castro uh, told Oliver Stone about his own plans for immortality. Um, uh, but I wonder if, uh, if it would be fair uh, if you could speculate a bit about what is likely to happen. Is there a, um, if you will, a, a government in place that uh, has the kind of popular support to continue Castro's policies after Castro, or is there um, a segue to a different kind of government that we might anticipate? Well. The official line is that Raul Castro takes over. And if you had any doubts about that, when Fidel fainted in 2001, I don't know if you all recall, yellow hard time there in the sun, um, what was fascinating was watching the people around him immediately come to the microphone and um, start screaming out, Viva Raul, which was a big sign that they had no clue what was about to happen, but they were getting ready just in case. Um, Perez Roca did it, Laje did it. And these are the people who are in place as supporters, as the infrastructure of the country, Carlos Laje, and, uh, and of course, Felipe Perez Roca, who's the Minister of Foreign Relations, who you have probably seen on the news in the last few days because of the um, UN vote. What, what is important to realize, though, that it, it really doesn't matter who comes into place, and it doesn't really matter what the Cuban government plan is. There's really only one thing that matters, and that's how will the U.S. government respond to whoever is in place? Will they lift the embargo? Will they lift it little by little or all at once? Will they establish diplomatic relations? Will they allow trade? 
what will they do in terms of the inevitable flood of people from Florida that will be illegally dashing over to the island to do God knows what? Um, what, you know, what will be the American response to whatever Cuba tries to do? You see, a government run by Raul Castro that is recognized by the U.S. is a very different government than a government run by Raul Castro that has no choice but to continue in this mentality of siege of war uh, that's going on. Um, so much depends on that. A lot of the excuses fall away if the U.S. would recognize the new government, but that will depend a great deal on who our president is. So to some extent, that also depends on what you do. <laughs> uh, some questions from the audience, please. We've got a bit of time. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, could you just say that one more time? No, just my question is. Why has the embargo failed to do what it was supposed to do, bringing, i.e., bring down Castro? Well, because he's a genius. It's given, uh, this is Don Quixote and the windmill. It's uh, the mouse that roared, David and Goliath. It's uh, always allowed him. Uh, a large